in the age of constant content creation, Insta stories and algorithms where artists are encouraged to simply keep making, keep releasing new stuff to keep themselves in the conversation, we are flooded with something new to consume at every moment. And the result is so much noise that sometimes you almost feel like you can't hear anything at all. As they say, how do you drink from a fire hose? Is it possible, one wonders, to remain relevant, to stay in the circle, but just not play by those rules? Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. When bassist and composer Todd Sikafus released his last record, Tiny Resistors, it had a quiet impact on a generation of musicians and fans. Musically, it was flexible and open, but it was also structured and intentional. It featured a band of musicians who are all esteemed artists in their own right, including Allison Miller, Shane Ensley, Alan Ferber, Ani DeFranco, Andrew Bird, Mike Gamble, and former guests of this podcast, Adam Levy and Ben Wendell. And like so much great art, Tiny Resistors sounds as contemporary today as it did when it was made, which is no insignificant thing when you consider that it came out in 2008. Today, Todd Sikafus lives in Eugene, Oregon, but he grew up in San Francisco and he lived in Brooklyn for a long time before making it back to the West Coast. Fifteen years after releasing Tiny Resistors, he's putting out the follow-up. It's called Bear Proof, 62 minutes of music written for eight musicians, intended to be performed straight through in a concert. The record captures one continuous take. The band is made up mostly of musicians who, like Todd, have ties to the Bay Area. It's essentially a through-composed piece organized around the sonic palette of accordion, cornet, clarinet, violin, piano, bass, and drums. Not only has it been 15 years since Todd released an album of original music, but it's actually been nearly 10 years since this latest one was recorded. It was captured in 2014, so this one has been marinating for a while too. But Todd has stayed busy since then. He's been playing with Ani DeFranco for two decades now, as well as writing music for film and podcasts and producing records for others like singer-songwriters Noe Venable and Anais Mitchell. It was his ongoing collaboration with Anais Mitchell that led to their work together on the hit Broadway musical Town which led Todd to win both a Grammy and a Tony for his production and orchestration work, respectively. Todd Sikafus is a quiet force. He has a calm, sweet energy about him, and it's easy to see why he puts others at ease in the studio and on stage. Meanwhile, his music is bold and emotive, provocative, and soulful. I love it. We talked recently about all of it, about Town and the process of putting together a Broadway musical, working with Ani DeFranco for 20 years, the new record Bear Proof, releasing music in today's world, why bass players make good record producers, and how a skin cancer diagnosis has impacted his life personally and professionally. Third-Story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive. Hundreds of deep dives like this one, including the aforementioned conversations with Adam Levy and Ben Wendell, plus others with the likes of Ben Wendell's mom, for example, Dale Franzen, who was one of the producers of Town, Andre DeShields, who was one of the stars of Town. Let's see who else. Other notable Bay Area musical babies like Charlie Hunter, Stephen Bernstein, and David Garibaldi. So many. Bass playing producers like Larry Klein, Michael League, Andres Levin. There are a lot of roads through the jungle of these conversations, and you can find yours at third-story.com. We are made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about all their award-winning content, and then it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to keep the ghost light lit 
here. Here's me and Todd Sikafoos talking it down last month. Hi. Hey, man. Hi. <laughs> Todd Sikafoos, I found an email that I wrote to you 10 years ago. It's the first time I reached out to you. Yeah. If I remember right, you were looking for a base. I was trying to you rent. You were playing at Yoshi's in Oakland. I was trying to rent a base. That's exactly right. <laughs> first time I called you was to rent a base. Second time was for you to play Wait, the base. Wait, did I help you out? No, you needed the base for a gig at SF oh, Jazz, a rehearsal. Oh, Okay. I got it. Got it. The second time I called you was for you to play the bass. Yeah. And that didn't work out either. Then I tried to get an interview happening with you <laughs> in, I think, 2020 at Winter Jazz yeah, Fest. Winter Jazz, and the timing didn't work or something. And so it's now a decade. It's actually a decade <laughs> in the making, this encounter. That sounds disappointingly like a lot of other conversations right now in my life things take a long time there's a lot of things to do in life there's a lot of things to do in life and man imagine if we had done an interview let's say five years ago or eight years ago i mean the conversation would be so massively different i think particularly around your career and i'm actually really glad that we waited until now and that also we get to talk about your new record and you know everything you've been oh, up good. to as you can imagine, I mean, probably a lot of people would have the same feeling. I, I feel like I'm just doing the same things. But yeah, I see, I see how that could be true. Yeah. I think maybe the easiest way to approach this conversation is for us to work backwards. Because actually the occasion of our meeting officially here today is that you, after uh, you know the numbers better than I do, 12 years, 13 years, are releasing a new record under your own name. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, that's, I think something like that is true. You're putting out Bear Proof, which is the sort of the answer to Tiny Resistors, I guess. It was me trying to do something a little different than Tiny Resistors. I wanted to, after we recorded Tiny Resistors and I got to, and that band became more of a thing that we would do with different people in different places yeah. and the cohesive factor being that we all knew the music really well and and things could evolve and and happen in in nice ways i wanted to swing the pendulum the other direction and make something a piece of music that was very scripted from beginning to end that could be a more repeatable experience and that mm. was bear proof and in some ways maybe part of why it, it kind of sat around for a little bit is i, I thought most of it of it as a live thing it has been very satisfying to perform it was interesting to record and it was a unique experience to record we actually recorded the whole 60 something minute piece in one take the record is take two actually <laughs> i heard a rumor that you were thinking about releasing the record as one track one track well it would make sense like that and especially these days where the audio platforms are so unreliable about track spacing. You know, I think it's discouraged people from having a lot of segues on records because oftentimes they just don't play correctly. So, you know, it's, it's always a little bit of a gamble. I'm making a little bit of a bid for someone to actually sit and listen to the whole thing because of the way it's constructed and the way it's played. Do you think it can be consumed 
either out of sequence or just kind of piecemeal, or that's really not the intention for it? That's not really the intention. I got convinced to release a couple of singles <laughs> before the entire album comes out. It's an odd idea with this, but I, I think the two pieces that we chose actually work like that. And, and maybe that just whets someone's appetite to, to actually sit and spend an, an hour with it. It really is um, uh, consecutively played. It's, you don't stop for an hour. There's no chance to say anything or adjust anything hit go and the rocket launches. You recorded this in 2014. That's right, yeah, it was quite a while ago. There was more music that I recorded around that time too, a little before that, things that were even more in the vein of Titan Resistors with, with, with much of that same band in New York, uh, kind of in the same way. And, 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 and all of that stuff is sort of still, still sitting around too. So why put it out now? You know, I went back and looked looked around and found it and dusted off the cobwebs at, in the beginning of the pandemic and realized I still stand by this as yeah. a composition. And there was just so much joy in everyone's playing. It felt like something I, I still stood by, but it also felt like I had a responsibility to the musicians. And a friend of mine here where I live told me one time we were hanging out and he said, oh, yeah, you, you know, you got to finish things because the projects that you're going to do next, they can see how you're treating these ones. <laughs> hmm. So he said, you, you got to treat them well and respect them so that the other ones, you know, pop their heads out. Yeah, right. I thought, I thought that sounded smart. You did two takes on the record. This is the second take. So in between the first take and second take, were you like, I mean, I know it's a long time ago, but <laughs> specifically talking about a piece, you know, the first piece, like, oh, don't forget if we're going to do it again, you got, or, or you're not, you're not <laughs> able to talk about that level of specificity. Well, honestly, we did the first take at the end of the first day. And then we went home and slept and dreamt about it. And then we came back and did the second one. It's always that second morning. Everybody's fresh, but you don't have to think about technical things. That's right. a beautiful moment in a recording session. But yeah, honestly, we had gotten pretty good at the music at that point we'd been playing it a lot we played it live on the radio once we had rehearsed a bunch quite a bit uh, a, a, a generous amount of rehearsal which these days just feels like heaven especially for something like this that's got a lot of detail to it but it was more about the choreography hmm. how how are you gonna not drop something that ends up in 17 microphones that was more what we talked about in between takes. And I think you said there's one overdub or something where Jenny dropped her bow or something and you had to do one <laughs> little fix. So, yeah, maybe that's why that's on my mind. Yeah, I think that's really true. So many bass players become great producers and great music directors, overseers of projects. Do you think there's something about seeing the music from the vantage point of the bass that is particularly helpful when it comes to having a, a more global vision of a project? Yeah, that is a that is a real phenomenon, isn't it? Um, I I do think those two things have to go hand in hand, and it probably is a chicken or an egg thing. I think the people who are drawn to that instrument probably already have those tendencies, mm -hmm. and then once and and then the other way around. Once you're at that instrument, you're just sitting, like you say, in a place where you can hear and see things in a particular way, and maybe you know it's an instrument that affords you a little bit more time in between the notes and <laughs> maybe there's a kind of bandwidth issue to it where you're where you're 
welcome to experience what's happening in front of you in a different way. I like that, that there's space in between the notes, because it's true, right? I mean, I think the frustration of guitar players when they're asked to play bass is that they get bored, they want to do more than the bass is asking of them. You know, you just have to... <laughs> yeah. yeah, but music is not about doing a lot, it's about doing the right thing, isn't it? But in the same way that I think like trombone players and violists are good, often good arrangers, and I think maybe because they're in the middle of the range, you know, that they hear, they kind of hear things from right in the center. I think bass players maybe make good producers in the same way that they that they have to be both responsible as a rhythm section instruments and also unlike drummers they also have to be responsible for some melodic and harmonic stuff too. You're also so aware of acoustics and how it it changes the nature of how your instrument works with the rest of the band and how just how the whole thing is functioning as yeah. a whole. Your instrument is so at the mercy of the sound waves in whatever space you're playing performing in and and you oftentimes need to adjust how you're playing to that and that tra can translate into a sense of how to make things work in the recording studio yeah but of course producing records is only partly technical it's part of it is musical and then there's also a very personal aspect to producing records you know when you're helping somebody else yeah to execute their project yeah, and the balance of knowing when to offer your own vision, your own sensibility and instincts, and when to let, let it be. Did you find that that was a kind of a natural fit for you? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're sort of making it up from scratch every moment you're doing it, I think, in a way. Or at least that's been my experience. You get experience making records that is applicable going forward in some ways but even if you tried you can't repeat the experience of making a record with with all the same elements it just doesn't work that way so you're constantly having to learn a new situation just as you go on your feet i think i think you're right i mean it's funny the question that pops into my head when you say that is well how do you know when you're doing it how do you know when you're producing a record other than that somebody says well you're producing it as you say Sometimes the right thing to do might be to not say anything, that th this is not the moment for me to interject my aesthetic on this. Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot that has to happen in the moment, but it's not to be overlooked the things that you can think about in advance. I care a lot about um, the experience of, of a recording project for the mus musicians involved and, and the, e even just the sheer enjoyment factor. And so much of that can really be affected by mm. having a real clear vision in advance about what to start with and what to end with. That thing of what's the last thing that you do on a record? Yeah. It means a lot. And huh. that can be an oversight. You can end a record with something that doesn't work, an idea that ends in a dead end. And then everybody's sort of left with a kind of feeling of... Well, it's just not as satisfying as sticking the landing. Hmm. And and so I, I don't know, I care about that. So those things add up. Yeah, it's a moving target. And um, it's a little bit just out of our control, which is probably adds to the fascination and the uh, obsession that we all feel in trying to cozy up to that, that music. It seems like one of the major distractions or interruptions in your life and in your ability to release solo records was Hadestown, which I imagine occupied an enormous amount of your last decade. It did. 
it was all encompassing when it was happening. And I, I wore a lot of hats in that process. And those hats stayed on my head <laughs> until pretty recently. It was it was surprising even to me. That's not true anymore right now. And it feels a little liberating. And, you know, yeah, we continue to all be so proud of the way that it gets honored night after night. Well, let's talk about some of the hats. You ultimately end up winning a Tony for orchestration and producing the cast recording. Before that, you had worked on the original record with Anais Mitchell that turned into the musical. I mean, your journey with this project seems like it goes all the way back to the inception of the project. That's right. Yeah. 2006, I think, was when I started working on it. And she and Michael Chorney, who I shared the, the orchestration win with, were working on it for about a year before that. In 2006, I came on board to ostensibly produce what was going to be a, a studio version of it. And we made that. And in the wake of that, it sort of became, um, you know, before that, it, it, was a, it, it was a theater production. It was on stage. It was very DIY. I was a part of that. I made a point of trying to be a part of that as much as I could. So I lear could learn as much as possible about everything about what Aeneas was doing, what everybody was doing, um, how to shape the music for the recording. And that was up in the Northeast in, in the winter. And we traveled by school bus. I mean, it was a really funny thing to imagine for anybody who knows it just as it's Broadway incarnation. Um, stagecoach kind of vibe, right? Like really old school. <laughs> it was one night in each place and the chorus, if you can call it that, were also the crew and, you know, they were moving lights around on the stage. And I mean, the whole thing, we, we just all couldn't get enough of it. Sometimes people ask me, could, you know, could you foresee what happened? Well, in, in one way, no, but in another way, we all just felt very strongly about what Aeneas had started and we all would do anything for her. So there was that always. And maybe that is really powerful. Maybe that's a thing that lasts. An idea that is compelling enough that it would put all that talent on a school bus and inspire them to get involved and then hold on for as long as they held on. Maybe it does speak to the idea that some ideas are just stickier than others or, or more compelling. Exactly. And also that that's a rare thing. You don't encounter too many of those in, in life. Um, so it's good to pay attention and give all you got to the ones that, that do. So yeah. you got called in to produce the record. And before you produced it, you said, okay, well, let me get involved here and see what's going on. You performed it. You sort of got inside the material. And you end up making this record that in itself was a pretty interesting project that had all these kind of guest singers, and it was a complete and beautiful presentation of the project. So then what happened after that record came out? It became mostly something that we conceived of as a music project for a long time. The format of the performances was something like Aeneas and the band would roll into an area of the country, the Northwest, and connect with some notable and beautiful singer-songwriters or singers of whatever ilk in that area and rope them into different roles and learn the music and then do a handful of performances around that region. That was something that lasted, I think, two or three or four years and really satisfying and took part in some of those. And Michael Chorney led the band for those. That was a fun period. 
And then that sort of wrapped up. And pretty soon after that, the producer that ended up being the lead producer still for the show approached Aeneas and said, have you ever thought about putting this back on the stage? Who was the lead producer, by the way? Her name is Mara Isaacs. Yeah. She's great. And I think that the, the way that she went about handling the whole project, we all owe her a lot. Was there anybody other than Mara involved in the project that knew anything about how a show might end up on Broadway? Like, was there anybody who had any familiarity with what that journey looks like? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. It, it has always felt to me like we just snuck in through the back door. Yeah. And of course, we worked on it and there were revisions and pretty major changes right up until we, when we actually opened on Broadway, even in the previews on Broadway. Yeah. But the language of the show and the philosophy of it being poetry, not prose, and the, the, um, the sort of core integrity of the music was intact so long before anybody put their hand up and said, can we help you put this back on stage again? It had a sort of protective bubble around it. Mm. And no one ever tried to pierce that. No one ever asked us to consider doing something for some kind of weird commercial reason. reason. I, I, you know, people knew better than that. I hear from my friends who work on shows that, as you say, up until the last minute, things can change. You can be adding songs, changing arrangements, whatever, you know, that it's constantly in flux until it gets fixed. But in the case of Town, you have this added time capsule in that you have the original record and then you have the cast recording. And although we may not know exactly how you got from point A to point B, there are some songs that are the same and the arrangements are so different and the orchestrations are so different. It's almost like it, in an archaeological way or an anthropological way, we get a chance to sort of figure out, well, it started here and it ended here and we have to sort of fill in the blanks. All aboard! Yeah, and it's fun It's fun to talk about the musical journey of all that, the poetry journey of all that. Aeneas wrote a book called Working on a Song, where she fleshes out exactly what you're talking about and connects the dots, and it's very interesting. And I think anybody who's a little bit interested in that ought to read that, because it's, it's fascinating, even, even to me, who's lived through all that. And in terms of the musical aspect of it, I mean, what was it? You, it seems like one piece of it is, you know, to not be at all attached to what you had done before. Like when you get into the process of taking it to the stage, you know, you have to just be prepared to like blow everything up, explode it and start over. True. <laughs> and there was a lot of that. And you're just involved all the time because there isn't a moment in the show that isn't a bar of music. So every change is all encompassing and, and, and adjusting the score. When we were in previews, we had this system where I would make changes after you know the show would end and then we'd talk for two hours and you know it's a live lively 
really creative bunch of people with really smart and beautiful ideas coming from all corners of the creative team that would wrap up and then everybody else would go home and I would go and monkey around with the score. I found this um, back room in a hotel in Midtown where there there were plugs and stools, but no one was ever there at one in the morning. I would go there every night. (laughs) And then when I would finish, I would um, send everything to the beloved copyist that we um, had a relationship when we were at the National Theater, who was in London. And the timing worked out really well because he was already out. And and then everything would be ready for the, the music stands first thing in the morning. It was an intense process of um, navigating that process of getting to the finish line. And even at this point, it feels like, yeah, so many things landed at the right place. How did that happen? How did the timing of that work? It's that thing that you sometimes experience where you have two hours and 10 minutes to get ready to leave on a trip and somehow it takes two hours and nine minutes and you just think, how did that happen? But, but maybe that's just what life is. You, you, you adjust to the circumstances. And, and for Aeneas, that meant letting go of some things. You know, it was quite meta for her. Her job when the show opened and we locked everything and she couldn't make any more changes was to do exactly what Orpheus's job was. You know, just walk out the front door and don't look back. Her work was done. I suppose that's the thing that songwriters in general have to deal with, composers on any level, you know, in this more theoretical sense, which is that you put work out in the world and it sort of doesn't belong to you at a certain point. I mean, even if it's the complete fruit of all your labor, even if it was born out of your heart and your soul and your work, once it's out in the world, you know, the way it is consumed, what it means to other people, it's not about you anymore. But what you're describing, particularly for her, and, and, and I think that's what's so kind of deep about Broadway to me, is that the shows get locked at a certain point. They're dynamic, they're changing, they're changing, they're constantly changing. You're up all night changing it until one day you're not, and then you can't anymore. Then it's unchangeable. That's right. For example, if uh, with Bear Proof, with your through-composed project, which is intentionally composed, if from today to t- till tomorrow you decided, you know what, I do want to change something about this for the next time we perform it, you could, but not with Town. It's locked. Yeah. I know it's this weird, it's almost got a, in a sense, both sides, there's this live element that's the thing itself is being recreated from scratch in front of an audience every single night. That's right. That is live performance. That is freshness. I mean, the actors are bringing incredibly spontaneous, detailed things to life every time they quote unquote raise the curtain. But it is also like, a recorded medium in the sense that it's scripted from beginning to end. It seems like part of the reason they freeze it the way they do is in order to protect the intellectual property, right? Like it's a thing where it's like, this is now we're going to sell this and we're going to license it and we're going to, so it and has to be recreated. It has to be something that can be taught to another generation of people who are, I mean, ever since, since the show opened on Broadway, a lot of members have changed. People in the band have changed. People on, on the, lead, the leads have changed. Like there have been a lot of things that have changed, but so it has to be locked enough that it can be passed from one person to another people in the theater will always say, well, that's the magic of live performance, right? Is that it's fresh every day. But hearing you say that raises a question for me. What was it like for you to live in a project that basically became a kind of repetitive cycle, especially once you got into the, the final, you know, you, you come from 
a world both of improvised music and also of music that is very alive to make a project that ultimately has to stay fixed? I mean, what was that like for you to live in that world? Well, I didn't experience it that way. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, as musicians, we're, we're involved in music that's all over the spectrum of, of how, how much of it uh, needs to be rediscovered every time and 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 so there's that zoomed out thing of how what percentage what percentage of this is going to come together right in right in front of us all together but whatever that percentage is you're working just as hard on it and and you know what i mean and yeah. and so i don't know i i'm i'm not sure if where uh, something is on that spectrum is the most important thing or, or the thing that I would experience yes. more, than, more than other elements. I've wondered sometimes what it's like to be... I'll give you an example. I saw Elvis Costello play at the Beacon last month. And when it came time for him to sing Watching the Detectives and Allison and some of his other big songs, I could feel him wrestling with the over-familiarity of those songs. Like he agreed with his audience that he would sing them. I'm going to sing these tunes for you. I know you want to hear them. But he kind of refused to do it the way you expected him to do it. You know, And I understood that because I think after a certain amount of time with the material, it becomes exhausting to have to step into that exact same outfit every night. You know, And I could feel him sort of saying, okay, well, I can't. I can't be that guy anymore. I've got to be this person and the music is going to change over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I stand uh, eight feet to the left of Ani DeFranco to play Little Plastic Castle a thousand times in my life. And, and um, luckily, she's of the mindset that she wants it to be different every time. And she'll admit that she yeah, she's the first to admit that. I understand that instinct. And ultimately, that's probably better for the audience anyway. They're getting a more honest thing. And why, why, uh, why do you want to hear something that's that's the same. You want to hear that spark of freshness or, or like you say, someone sort of poking out at the edges or, yeah, wrestling with their own costume that they've got on. <laughs> that they've grown out of. I'm glad you brought up the relationship with Ani DeFranco. And I wonder where that, you know, just where that fits into your life. You're almost 20 years on now playing with Ani. Yeah. And I have to say that Ani is the reason why I met Aeneas originally. And of course, she was responsible for setting us off on that project at the very beginning. The original Town record came out on her label. She sang one of the prominent roles in it. But yeah, it's been a constant in my life. I think it's 19 years at this point. Every time I sit back and examine it a little bit, it feels like um, as a kid, I, I had this experience all the time of it's hard to pick your campsite at the end of a backpacking trip because you always want to see what's around the next bend. I think I'm like that with music a little bit. I just want to know what's going to happen next. And and I feel that way strongly about the relationship with her because it's always been interesting. Every phase has been interesting. You met her or started working with her after you opened for her? I read that. Maybe that's not true too, but is that the case? No, it is. Yeah, there's an artist called Noe Venable who's really interesting and, and great. We opened for her twice and um, met her during that time. The first time, Ani had a big, huge six-piece band, really powerful band and then in between those two times she had sort of disbanded that and gone back to 
her roots of just playing by herself. And so the second time she was out there by herself, she was thinking about putting together a, a different band for a recording with Joe Henry. And all of Joe Henry's normal wrecking crew was roped in, Jay Bellarose, Patrick Warren, people like that. But there was no bass player. And she said, well, there's this guy who I'm digging every night here. And um, and the name of that album was Knuckle Down. So that was the first thing that she asked me to do, but then we started playing together and working on those songs and it just became something that felt really good. And for a year at the very beginning, I think we just played duo and the music that she was writing around that time seemed especially suited to that. So mm -hmm. it was working like that. Do you think working with Ani, especially in helping to sort of birth those songs with her, prepared you in some way for the Hadestown experience? Yeah, maybe so. There's a kind of discipline in a theater project because there's so many moving parts and you have to wait for the right turn to sort of advocate for something. And it's just a big, huge machine that requires uh, so much maintenance <laughs> and, and formality in a way. Even when you're having informal ideas or raw ideas that are about emotion, they have to be fil filtered and, and codified almost immediately sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and that part of the process is very different than a lot of other things in my musical life. But I, I've always been a pretty detailed oriented person. So it, it suits me. I, I, I felt right at home in that. How did you define the the musical palette of the stage show of Hades Town. I mean, when you make a record, you can kind of, you know, you can put one instrument on one track and not on another if you want to. You can sort of blow open the, the walls if, if you need to. Hades Town original record kind of has a defined sound, but but when you went to take yeah. it to the stage, you know, the trombone comes forward, the cello comes forward. Right. You have all these sounds that you sort of chose as somehow rep representative elements in, in the music. Yeah, well, the instrumentation becomes everything. Yeah. You've got seven acoustic instruments. I mean, you know, it's it's beautiful. The power could go off in the Walter Kerr Theater and we could keep going because these instruments are just, their sound is coming straight off the stage. But what can you do with these seven acoustic instruments? You know, you've got two hours to answer that question in as many ways as you possibly can. The first thing to do was to say, we want these to be entirely acoustic instruments and these are going to be the seven instruments that we're going to use. Well, in some ways that was baked in. Um, because that's how it happened at the very beginning. Yeah. And we made some adjustments. You know, some of these things are, if you answered honestly, it would be about who was around in Vermont at, at the time that Aeneas and Michael started working in 2005 on the songs. And some of the instrumentation we tried to lift up so that it was a little bit brighter. You're honoring Hades, but you don't want it to get too subterranean in its sound. You need some balance and some lightness. And so we did everything we could to raise that up into the air a little bit. But a lot about the in instrumentation was baked in. We added the pianist doubling on accordion at the New York Theater Workshop off-Broadway, and, and that stuck. And 
uh, remains to this day, but that was the seventh piece. So when you entered the project, there were already six pieces. Those sounds were there. That's right. You know, you talk about this, you want to honor Hades, but you want to try to find some lightness when you can. I mean, it gives me a sense that in order to even to approach the orchestration of a project like this, you have to have a kind of a an overarching understanding of what you're trying to achieve, what intellectually is happening, what in a literary function is happening or a, or a dramaturgical way yeah. is happening, and also what's going to sound good. Like the, they, those are kind of interacting with each other. Especially with continuous music. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pacing to think about zoomed in emotions and zoomed out emotions and the arc of these different things and when something is too on the nose and when you feel like actually you do need to mark a moment more. I just said a sort of run-on sentence that was probably a, a lot more analytical than a lot of our conversations, which stayed in the realm, more of your question, stayed in the realm of emotions. When you won the Tony, when it was your turn to speak, you said something like you were appreciative of the openness, that there was an openness in the space. Mm. When you sneak in through the back door like we did, you don't expect to be welcomed like this, so thank you. <laughs> And may this community only become more and more welcoming. You had come from the outside. You didn't come from the sort of the Broadway world. You came from another planet, really. And here you were being kind of rewarded by the Broadway community for this work. Partly, it's just that we came from a, a more purely music space. But yeah, I think Broadway music is talked about as a style, which is just insanity. And... Um, as much as that can be cracked open and infiltrated by different music, the more the better. Did you feel along the way that there was any antagonism or that you were treated as outsiders on the path to Broadway? Did, were, you, were you feeling like maybe... By who? I don't know, by the, anybody in the establishment. Or, I mean, did, or even, no. even just in terms of the process, feeling like, wow, we're not, we really stepped in from the outside here. No. And, and that's not to be taken for granted. There's a lot of camaraderie in that community. It's a yeah. pretty small artistic community and everybody works really hard. Yeah. Really hard. So there's a lot of support. Was it stressful? Uh, sure. Yeah. At times. Yeah. But mostly art stressful. Uh, we wanted to get it right. And yeah, be the right be the right part of the of, of the of the team uh you know be, support the other people who are in these different parts yeah. of the of, of the show when you hear it now are you able to listen to it just as a as a finished piece of music do you hear your decisions or do you hear it as music i think anything that you work on really hard you always hear what's behind it and and you hear details in it that probably escape other people but yeah it's been it's been some years now since we were under the hood like that. So there is a freshness. It's always nice to go back to music that you know really well yeah, and hear it in different ways. We're here talking about a show that you worked on and orchestrated that opened years ago and is still part of your life and your narrative. We're here talking about Bear Proof, which is a record that apparently you recorded almost a decade ago and are just prepared to talk about now. On the one hand, I'm kind of inspired by the thinking that the work that we make, if it's done right, is outside of time, at least the work that you're making, and that it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of incredible, Todd, that we're here talking about two major projects that 
are not happening right now. These are things that have been mm. made and that we're talking about. So what did you do after Hadestown was, the Hadestown experience was over? What, what have the last few years mm-hmm. been like for you? I mean, I continue to help other people make lots of records. Yeah. That takes um, a lot of my artistic time. And of course, we've hit on some of the other things. I've spent a lot of time out with, with Ani performing and, um, and other groups, in particular projects with Jenny Scheinman and Allison Miller. I've dealt with some health problems in the last bunch of years and it takes a lot of time to heal <laughs> and i've spent a lot of time in that zone and, and a lot of energy on that my family is a real source of love and balance from that you're a father uh, you know how it is a father and a son in one of our first email exchanges when you learned that i was playing music with my own father you said to me Oh, that's interesting. My parents were not musical, but my kids are musical. I wonder if one day I'll play music with them. Oh, that's great to hear so many years later and and see that starting to come true a little bit. Yeah. How old are your kids? They're nine and 11, two girls. And do they, do they play music? Yeah, they're starting to a little bit. We got, uh, had a little bit of a different year last year. My wife is a college professor. She's on faculty at University of Oregon yeah. in the education college. And uh, last year was her first sabbatical, and uh, she arranged to do some research in Mexico, and we lived in Oaxaca for the whole year. In fact, I think we we left to go down there a year ago today. Wow. It was a wild experience, and I think probably from this point on, I'll, I'll write music in, in three for the rest of huh. my life. <laughs> it made me want to learn the tuba. Did you take a bass with you? I didn't. I didn't really have an instrument down there. I was. I was coming back up here to play, but I took my ears with me, and that was incredible. I think the most prolific songwriting year of my life was my junior year in college when I studied abroad in Spain and had no instrument. Eventually, I went and bought mm. a cheap guitar, and as soon as I got my hands on the guitar, it was just like a flood of songs. And I think it yeah. was like because I, I hadn't had an instrument for a while, you know. Yeah input mode yeah input mode exactly (laughs) i like that so you were flying back up here to play gigs and then you'd go back down to mexico and live yeah it was a little crazy but yeah it was worth it and what is it like to be in eugene i mean for you how has that transition been what was it like to move to eugene i i moved here in a kind of lucky way because it was almost 10 years ago and i'm still going out and working with a lot of the same people i mean it's been a wonderful way to support my wife to be able to be here and still do what I do. It's not the most ideal place a lot of times, and it, it requires a little bit of a split screen life. Oftentimes, when I'm playing music, I can't just go home afterwards, I'm somewhere else, but it's worth it. And Eugene's got a lot of lovely qualities that have only grown on us. I, I bet it has a lot in common with Madison. I hadn't really ever thought of that. Yeah, I think there's there's something to that. That split-screen life is an interesting way of describing it, right? Because you're never fully integrating the two things. Like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. When you're on the road, you know, you're playing, but you're like basically totally musician. You don't get to be dad at the same in the same day, and you don't get to sort of be your full self. And then when you're home, there's this aspect of you that is untapped that you're not mm-hmm. able to do. Uh, and is there a music scene there that you have plugged into or in Portland or do you do any local stuff? A little bit. I've got friends and colleagues up in Portland yeah. and uh, there's there's a little bit here. And of course, I've got my uh, my basement studio pretty dialed in where, where I do a lot of work. And, yeah. But 
this is an audio format, so you're the only one who can see that right now behind me. I can see the beautiful panels in the ceiling and on the walls. <laughs> the, it looks like you totally tightened up the room and it's all dialed in. <laughs> Hopefully you can tell with my, uh, my recorded voice here. Yeah. Eugene is a lovely place, though. I, I, I don't regret coming here. But so much of your musical identity was actually formed in the Bay Area. You came out of a place and a generation of musicians who all seem to have found their way together, and now I guess separately also. But I'm curious how you feel that just having come from the Bay Area has marked your identity musically. I don't know. There's something in the water there, isn't there? I can see it in other people better than myself, but there's a kind of westernness and and it probably comes across on this record. You know, there are some people who don't technically live on the west coast in this eight-piece band, but they're connected. They've got tentacles there. Allison Miller in particular, she's from Baltimore area and lives in New York, but she um she's sort of an honorary Bay Area uh, musician at this point, and she is the um, artistic director of a great Santa Cruz Mountains jazz camp now. Yeah, I guess because of that, I f assumed that she had roots out there. It's good enough. Isn't she does it? now, yeah. And Kirk is from Denver. He's that's that's Western enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I always think of people from Denver, especially. They're sort of they're just the same. They just they got to the mountains and they said that this is good enough. We don't need to, need to go the whole way. So I didn't know that you've been struggling with health stuff, and we don't have to get into it, but it, it, when you said that, you know, one thought I had was just the complexity of being alive. You mm. are given this enormous success, this wonderful gift. The Broadway thing, put your name in front of all these people there you were winning Tony, and there's a Grammy, and it's like you put all this work in and you were rewarded, and at the same time, you, you know, you're dealing with, with health stuff. The good and the bad come equally sometimes. I know I don't often talk about it except with friends and family, but you've put me at ease here. And um, it was a melanoma diagnosis that I got in 2017. So I was right smack in the middle of it and in, in all, all of that work towards Broadway, like you say. But I've, I've been in remission most of those years and then uh, had a recurrence this spring. Uh. And hopefully, you know, my, I think my prognosis is pretty good, but... Um, you know, we're all in this situation where you don't know what's going to happen next. And maybe for me, it's a little bit that that's a little bit brought to the surface. Check your moles. That's the moral of the story. Did it reshape the way you thought about the kinds of projects you wanted to do, the things that you wanted to spend your time on? Maybe so. But, you know, I think I had already been thinking about that. And I had already gotten to the place where there was more opportunity to do different things than 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 I could possibly pull off as a single person as a singular person yeah but yeah more acutely felt for sure we know our our time is limited but we know it more you know if you get a diagnosis that's right and that's why i think a lot of people especially if you're lucky enough to heal wouldn't trade it wouldn't wouldn't say that they would rather not have the experience because you learn something that's very useful about hmm. what it is to, to be waking up every morning. Mm. Even if the lesson is you're exactly in the right place, huh. you've got the people around you that, that are matching your heart and what you need and, and what you want and what you can accomplish with this time. 
Todd, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, man. And I know that we barely scratched the surface of so much of your career. We really just talked a little bit about Bear Proof and a little bit about Town and a little bit about Ani DeFranco. But I'm really moved talking to you. I, you have a kind of a quiet uh, reassurance about you that is really fun to be around. Oh, thanks. I've really enjoyed this conversation, too. Thank you, Leo. There he was, my friends, the well-tempered Todd Sikafus. What a sweet guy. What you hear behind me is Reverse Fortune, the closing track, if it's fair to call it a track, from Bear Proof. I'll be back in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.